please turn in your Bibles to Mark 11, or you can look at the insert. Two verses in particular in this passage we will accent together, focus on together. This is one of the gospel accounts of Jesus entering Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. Um, up, building up to this point in the text, we can be sure that every year the Jewish faithful would have been bringing, uh, will be taking a pilgrimage to Jerusalem. They didn't all live in Jerusalem, especially the ones that are yelling to the Lord. These are most likely Galilean pilgrims from the outskirts coming in to worship for Passover, to bring their sacrifices for Passover. And you remember the Passover event. That happened some 1,400 years before the time of Christ when Moses led the children of Israel out of Egypt. And the last plague the Lord sent was his angel of death coming upon the land. And the way that you could have your firstborn saved from death would be to apply the blood of a spotless lamb on the doorpost. And when the angel of death passed over, uh, they would pass over your house and the judgment would not visit because you were covered in the blood. That sacrifice is the picture of what they were, uh, we were doing there, remembering that, but then looking forward to the final sacrificial lamb who would come. And unbeknownst to most of them, I believe it's safe to say, Jesus was going to be that lamb. Despite what they said, he was going to be the spotless sacrifice pictured so many years before and observed year after year after year, including this year. So we come to this occasion in Mark 11, Jesus is entering Jerusalem. Uh, he is entering, not bringing a sacrifice in his arms, because he is the sacrifice to be offered. Hear now as I read God's holy word, Mark 11, 1 through 11. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany, the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. And if anyone asks you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing in tying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Let's bow together as I lead us in prayer. Lord, each year we spend time visiting uh, the, portion, the portions of your word that are dedicated to Jesus' week of passion. His very intense, climactic build-up to the sacrifice that he will make. His sacrificial earthly ministry comes to a head now in this portion of scripture leading forward. Here we have the beginning of that week of his great passion as he enters Jerusalem. This story never gets old. There's always more for us to consider and contemplate when we read it. Please guide us by your Holy Spirit as we remember Palm Sunday once again and see its never-ending application. 
pray this in Christ's name, amen. Of the four Gospels, Mark comes at you the fastest. It's the shortest and it's the swiftest in the story he tells. But there's one verse that captures the whole of the Gospel of Mark, and it happens in the same chapter. And when you think of this central verse, this, you might say, thematic verse, it helps fill in the context for the text we're looking at. In Mark 10, verse 45, Jesus speaking says that even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That's the underlying verse that tells you the full story of why Jesus came. And the Gospel of Mark is very explicit about this. And here on Palm Sunday, the passage before us in Mark 11, Jesus is presenting himself now at the beginning of the week as the ransom for many. By the words of the people who observe Jesus as he comes in, they knew something was significant in the person of Christ and what was unfolding. They say, Hosanna, which it means, Lord, save us, or save us now. It's an urgent plea for salvation. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They're attributing this to Christ as they see him come in. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Now it gets more specific. Hosanna in the highest even. Save us now in the highest. For them, saying such a thing, when they see Christ, it means that they thought that Jesus had at least some kind of purpose and power to save. They wouldn't just say it otherwise. But what did they exactly mean? That's a good question to ask. It's a worthy question as we interrogate, if you will, the passage. Surely at some level they had in mind the prophecy they knew of from Zechariah that was 540 years before. Now again, when I throw out these numbers, America's 250 years old, right? 540 years before the first Palm Sunday, the prophet Zechariah said this, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey. Not on a war horse. Humble and mounted on a donkey. On a colt, the foal of a donkey. In the lordship of Christ, he's able to fulfill this and all the other prophecies to a T. And we see that the audience must have made some connection with this prophecy as they shout out. They couple their expectations of a coming kingdom with who they knew Jesus to be from what they heard about him, the buzz that circled around him, and they shout, Hosanna, save us. You can certainly save us. What I would point out to you as we build up through this passage and then make a few applications at the end, I would point out to you that there is a, a bit of a common practice among humanity, even as we relate to God. Christians may do this too. We tend to think of salvation in a much less dynamic way than the way God has actually exercised it and entered in and, and played it out. In other words, we might say that Christ came to provide a salvation that most people don't fully appreciate, the extensive nature thereof. It's far greater than most people realize, and that unfolds here in what we see happening and what they say, and of course, what happens after. What did the audience mean when they said, Hosanna? Surely they knew they were asking something big. But who or what were they asking for Jesus to save them from? Uh, these were Jewish people. They were the Galilean pilgrims, most likely. They were there to celebrate the Passover. They were devout pilgrims. They cared about their nationality. They cared about their heritage. They cared about their culture, no doubt. I'm sure many of them cared about their faith, 
carried about the traditions of their faith, what the temple meant, what sacrifices meant, what the messianic promise concerned. Here they are bringing their annual sacrifice, the biggest event in the Jewish year. Now to appreciate more fully what they might have meant by saying Hosanna, blessed is, is the coming kingdom of our father David. Something more is there. It helps to look back in their history to see what brings them to this moment. And I mean way back. Jesus comes a thousand years after King David lived and reigned. A thousand years. So for a thousand years, there's been a bit of a buildup to this moment, to say the least. David, you remember, was a warrior king and a prophet of God. He was a savior to his people. David led Israel to glorious victory after victory over their surrounding enemies, and he had a spiritual dimension to him. He cared about Yahweh in covenant with Yahweh. He, he contained all of it. He lifted Israel to its highest point ever. We sometimes think of Solomon, but that's not true. It was under David that they lived at their highest moment. Solomon rightly lived through the glory of his father's momentum, essentially. Solomon's success as a king, it really did come at the coattails of his father's reign, and everyone knew it at the time, and they especially knew it now. They didn't say, here is our father, King Solomon. This is King David's kingdom that is coming. That's the kingdom. The world didn't fear Solomon like they feared David, and Israel knew it and loved it in those moments. Yes, Solomon did great things, built the temple that was planned by David. But Solomon never was seen as the true world power that King David was. So anytime you see in the New Testament era a reference to King David, they're talking about a time of national glory that they believe in some sense God owed to them to restore by promise. They were waiting on this. They were expecting this. This was the time that God was most favorable in the past and now he promises to do even greater in the future. This is no doubt what was in the mind of most of the Jews. The words of the crowd towards Christ on Palm Sunday then makes a bit more sense when we think back on David's time when they say, blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. The days after David were mostly about Jewish decline when you think upon that thousand years from David to the time of Christ. A spiritual decline started soon after in the person of his son Solomon. Eventually a cultural decline happened, a national decline happened. His time of prosperity gave way quickly to high taxes to maintain everything, unholy international alliances, spiritual apathy, and eventually the kingdom split after Solomon died into the north and into the south. Then Israel wasn't the world power it once was, and the kingdom of Assyria rose. And Assyria almost immediately assimilated the northern kingdom, the ten tribes, the lost tribes of Israel, gone. Then a hundred years or less later, Babylonia rises, the, the Babylonian Empire, and now taking both the north, what was left, the remnant thereof, and the south underneath its subjugation. This is now Israel in this period of time that unfolds before the time of Christ. Didn't stop with Babylon, the Medes rose, the Persians rose, eventually the Greeks rose. The Greeks almost squashed the Israelites off the face of the planet, but by, by God's supernatural preservation, they maintain identity in their temple. And then only about 30 years before the time of Christ, 60 years before Palm Sunday, the Romans rise to power and they are hungry after imperial expansion. And the Romans are not uh, wanting to suffer too much rebellion by the Jews. And 
various, very light treaties were made. As long as the Jews stayed in Judea around their temple and paid their taxes, we'll put a governor there, Rome says, then you can exist. Well, how does glorious Israel think of that? Here they are under the thumb of Rome. Anywhere they went, any Jewish citizen in Judea would know it's Rome who's the master here, not King David. In fact, they would take money, the Romans would purposely take money out of the Jewish treasury and use it on Roman projects just to show them who was boss. At one occasion, just a short time before this episode with Jesus going uh, into Jerusalem, Pontius Pilate, who you know to be the governor, the Roman governor in Judea, he, as a show of force and brutality, killed multiple worshipers at the temple for no real reason, slaughtered them in cold blood, reminding the Jews who was king. So this is the mindset that you have as a Jewish citizen living under the oppression of the Roman rulers. This is why you can imagine when you come to verse 9 and verse 10, what is behind this when those first people said, save us to Christ as he goes into Jerusalem. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. You see what they're saying. And take apart the different words that they speak. Hosanna from antiquity. Save us now. It's an urgent cry. It's not save me later. It's save me now. We need your salvation now. And they mean something specific about that salvation, which will take some time to consider. But also as you unfold what is being said, very messianic terminology now used next. Blessed is he, anointed is he, who comes in the name of the Lord. That's messianic, prophetic, kingly language. That's to say that you're the Christ. Christ is the Greek word for Messiah. You're the anointed one who comes in the name of the Lord. Save us now, Messiah. Again, what do they mean by save us now and who is the Messiah in their minds? Jesus had been ministering openly for some three years. There was a buzz for sure about who Christ was. There were many divided views about Jesus at this time, but no one could deny that he did miracles and bore resemblance to the messianic hope that was forecasted. He did miracles as mentioned. He healed the sick and the lame, restored sight to the blind, all specifics outlined in the Old Testament about what Messiah would do. He was able to debate with the religious authorities, showing his superior biblical knowledge. Few could do that. All these actions prophet like Isaiah spoke of. So now, once again, when the people say, blessed is he, or blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David, Hosanna in the highest, what is the coming kingdom? What do they mean by this? Well, the kingdom of David, they know in a certain sense, it's the high point of Israel. It's a reference to that king, and they're thinking of something even greater still to come, as the prophecies would say. The key idea about salvation based on a surface-level consideration of their words No doubt, it was mostly that they were asking for salvation from their current situation. It's not to say they had no religious devotion. It's just to say that their presenting issue, their life in Rome and all it meant, was the thing that was most on their mind when they cry out, save us. And I would suggest that that's not unusual for us, even if we normally understand a biblical priority, as God lays it out. We are enraptured by either our trials or our prosperity. Whatever it may be, it takes our eyes off often of what it is that God says we should be most concerned with. And when we concern ourselves in the priority order that God has, the other things that still mean something, they matter, they come into a different, a better view, I would suggest. Christ came to provide a salvation. They were crying out for salvation. But the salvation he came to give 
was far greater than most of them realize, no doubt. And this is a recurring biblical theme that I would call our attention to, especially we come into worship to take our mind off of the things that are going on and focus on what's eternal, what's ultimate, what God says we need to calibrate ourselves going into the week together. A recurring theme give us, gives us an expanded view of reality, what God is doing. We tend to think that we see it all, that we figure it out, that we're not distracted. But more often than not, our view is obscured when we cry out whatever we cry out to God. Scripture gives us this wide perspective on the plan and providence of God, and it unfolds right here. Even if they were saying one thing and God was meaning another, it brings to our attention the way we tend to see our present situation come in front of our eyes to see the ultimate of what God is doing. Too often, we focus on the here and the now, and it's to the detriment of our future and eternity even. We're consumed with the present. So many things, so many things stress us or distract us or occupy our minds, even now. Like, come on, I got a lunch to go to. I got things to do to get on the rest of my day. The things, there's so much going on. You didn't sleep great last night because your mind's racing. So many things make it hard for us to focus on the ultimate things God's called us here to refocus on. And this story, this episode is perfect for this. Our immediate life situation often distracts us from looking ahead to what God has. Our future is our eternity, our forever existence, and that ought to concern us. We have relational strains and stresses right now, physical pains. We have financial pressures. We have experienced social pressures. Maybe we have things going so well that we're enraptured with those things. Our immediate circumstances keep us looking in the wrong ultimate place oftentimes. I think you could say that's true for the audience here a bit as they say save us from this immediate problem we have. Here's a way in which I'd like to describe it that I think we'll all relate. Some 25 years ago I became the gym teacher at then Westminster Academy because they had no one else essentially. Uh, and I just come in as an intern and that's what interns as interns will tell you they do whatever you're told to do. And so I became the gym teacher. I expressed openly I had no training as a gym teacher, but I knew how to play flag football outside and dodgeball inside. In fact, a little story uh, that you keep between us, you know the stained glass as you walk in? Those used to be in the multi-purpose room where we worship. If you look really closely at the stained glass, you'll see a little crack that may or may not have happened through a dodgeball game that happened in the multi-purpose room. And so as I was playing dodgeball. Um, I enjoyed it. The students enjoyed it. Just saw a student who's 30-something now with a kid and said, I remember when you used to play dodgeball with us back in the day. And I had a tactic that he remembered. And this tactic will help us understand what I'm saying here about our immediate taking away off the ultimate. The best way I had to defeat, say, the third grade class. That was my thing. The whole third graders come in and Pastor Tony will beat you in dodgeball. It's going to be fun. I even got in a wheelchair once and did it from a wheelchair. I mean, that's just how much I needed a pump up, I guess, at that point in my life to be third graders in dodgeball. At any rate, a tactic I had that I used for many years is I'd get one ball, I'd have a couple more in my hands, and I'd throw the ball up in the air as high as I could. And what did every kid? They looked up, and then I drilled them with the balls that were down here. Too many of us 
because of a personal circumstance that's right in our face that we think it's a threat. We think it's a bigger threat than it is. It could be relational, it could be physical, it could be be whatever it is. And we're so focused on that, we're looking up and we're gonna get drilled with things that are much more important, much more significant, much more eternally related. And part of why we come to the word is to recalibrate under what God's heavenly vision is for things, ultimate vision. Because when we have that right view, the other things that come at us will take their place more carefully. We'll see how they fit in in relationship to what God has determined on an ultimate level. The people saying Hosanna wanted a kind of salvation, but they didn't know that Christ came to give a much better salvation than the one they asked for. Now, he would give them the one they actually wanted in an ultimate sense, but that's not as important as the one they really needed, what we really needed to be saved from. I want us to consider that as we consider, as we walk through this a little further. Now, one more thing before I make these applications that you see on your outline. I want us to think for a moment, what could have been in that crowd a few different meanings they had behind saying, save us, Hosanna. I think most were probably saying, save us from these Roman oppressors, this situation we have found ourselves in as a nation. Please, Lord, take away our discomfort as the Israelites, your people. Save us from this humiliation we feel against the face of Rome and the world watching on. Elevate our status from this humiliating state. Make us matter in this world, God. Save us, they're saying to Jesus as he goes into the temple. Save us so we can be like our forefathers once were under David. Put us over others. Maybe some were saying, crush our enemies. That's what they meant by save us. So myopic, so immediate, so temporal. Yes, it was in their face, but it was temporal. Not nearly as expansive as what Jesus set out to do. Now, maybe there's another circle of people that had a more spiritual view. Um, They were recognizing the misery they felt, and they knew that Israel had not been faithful to God on the whole, and could have been saying, save us from this state. Be a better king than we've had, certainly better than these Herods who were not even real Jewish kings. So some might be saying, Hosanna, we hate our existence now. We've been sinful and rebellious as a nation. We need to turn to you. We're miserable. Save us from this misery. I'm miserable personally, someone might say. I feel life is wrong. I have lots of pains in my life. Take those away, Messiah. We know you've done miracles. All of us need miracles. Our lives are terrible. I've been selfish. People have been selfish to me. I've hurt them. They've hurt me. I've been used. I feel lonely. I feel desperate. I feel needy, vulnerable, abused. Save us from our life sense of things, the way we're living our lives. Please save us from this. So it's a little more focused asking Jesus of something big. But here is the thing. What Jesus came to save from is far bigger than this. It could include those because of what he does ultimately. Few would probably have been saying Hosanna with the ultimate reality of what Jesus had come to do in mind. I think few. I could be wrong, but I think few thought this. Hosanna. No matter what happens in the short term, we deserve it all. But save us from eternal death. We are sinners who deserve God's wrath for eternity. Please save us from that eternal fate. We're going to hell and we deserve it. Please save us. We don't deserve saving, but please save us. We're on a path that leads to eternal destruction. We know that's what we should get. So please, O Lord, Hosanna in the highest, save us from this. Circumstances in which we find ourselves are because of sin in the world and sin in us. Please save us from our sin and where it will lead, O Lord. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, is what they said. What did they mean? Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. Yes, part of what 
the Lord was coming to save us from are these two first things, but they had it all reversed. The ultimate thing that Jesus comes, us, comes for us to save us from is the, the one they thought least of, and then it informs the others. And that's how I want us to put a capstone on Palm Sunday, thinking and meditating upon what Jesus has done. First, I want you to consider how Jesus saves us ultimately and most importantly from God's wrath. That's the most important reason for his coming, as far as we're concerned. For his glory is more important, but we can give glory because he saved us from his wrath. So the first thing I want you to notice as Jesus comes in, he's fulfilling a centuries-old prophecy that he would come to crush Satan by offering himself as the perfect sacrifice. The issue is, however, to crush Satan, he would have his heel bruised, as it forecasts in Genesis 3.15. He's setting out to have his heel bruised, as at the same time, he will provide salvation and crush Satan under his feet. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. It is the Messiah, the second Adam that we've been reading about in Genesis. And now he had finally come. Messiah in the Greek means Christ, the anointed one. And here he starts his walk. And what does he do? First and foremost, he takes upon himself the one who is worthy because he has no sin, all of our sin. And all of our sin on us means the wrath of God should justly fall. But he takes it from you and puts it on himself. And then he goes to the cross and takes all the wrath that should come to you, comes to him, falls upon Christ. That's what he saves you from first. And that's the most important salvation. None of the rest of it matters except for the wrath of God be diverted from us and it was placed on him. And this is why the apostle Paul said, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This does not minimize temporal issues we all face and struggles and circumstances, but it sets it in its proper place when you know that the wrath of God is not on you any longer. He is not angry with you any longer because of Christ. That's what we gain in salvation, the most important feature of our salvation. It's not the only, it's even greater than that still. But that's the most important feature, being rescued from this eternal wrath that God would pour upon us so now we can have eternal life. Hosanna in the highest means this. Once the wrath of God has been removed, and it's removed for anyone who is resting in Christ, if it's removed for you in this way, there's a reality of another kind of salvation that we receive that's part of this. That's the second part of this. The salvation that we will then experience when the wrath, once the wrath of God is diverted, we're not left alone with nothing to our credit any longer, just standing there with no guilt. No, not only is the guilt taken away, but we also then receive Jesus' righteousness. So in place of us, God sees the righteousness of Christ. He no longer sees our sin, it's paid for. He sees Christ's righteousness credited to you by faith. So our guilt is removed, and then with our guilt goes with it, the feeling we have about being guilty, our shame goes too. So our guilt and our shame, the thing that, that plagues us all the time because we mess up so often, and we do mess up often, but the guilt of that's been taken by Christ to himself. God pours his wrath out. So he gives us Christ's righteousness, and even as we still sin, he still sees Jesus in you the hope of glory. He still sees you and he accepts you. Now that knowledge will help you say no, no to sin more than we've said before. But what he's done in saving us is also 
not just from the wrath of God, but from the guilt and from the shame that comes with being in our state of sin. Salvation is holistic, and it also saves us to something, a new status before God. It saves us to be his children now. Now we're adopted sons and daughters. This salvation that he came to give was much, much greater than simply removing the thumb of the Romans for a little while. If they knew anything from history, there's someone behind the Romans. And after that, that's life in this fallen world until this short life ends. What God's promising is something foundational that will live into eternity and shape everything that happens after this. I think that God using the Apostle Paul by inspiration of the Holy Spirit to pen Ephesians is significant. When he uses human authors, he keeps intact their personalities, if you will, as he writes through them. He did this with Moses in Genesis. He does this here. Did it with Mark writing the gospel. Does it with Paul. Paul, a murderer, someone who had every reason to live under the wrath of God, the guilt of God, the shame of God, the shame of his own sin. And listen to this, this, the precious words of one who understands the full salvation that God has granted. Paul writes, and he writes on our behalf to us, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. To do what? That we should be holy and blameless. We should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. He did this according to the purpose of his will, this mystery that we can't imagine why God would do this, but he does this according to the good purpose of his will. And he does so to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. What grace? The riches of his grace. This undeserved favor he shows because of what Jesus has done in our stead. This grace that he lavished on us, didn't give us a little, lavished us with his grace. This great salvation that he has given us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, once again, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In the fullness of time had come, and now Jesus stepping, his first step towards going into Jerusalem, symbolic of what he was there for, to be the sacrifice. You know, this is not tied only to a New Testament doctrine that Paul writes. The whole of the Bible looks for this, this intercession on the part of Jesus. The Old Testament saints looked ahead to it, and we look back at it being completed. David, of all people, a thousand years before, writes in that assurance of pardon that we just had read, that Josh read earlier. We read this often. The words are powerful. Think of them in terms of what Christ has accomplished. David looked ahead to God doing it, believed that God would bring it. We look back knowing he did. In Psalm 103, the Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. He will not always accuse, nor will he harbor his anger forever. Well, when will he stop? When Christ comes, when Christ intercedes, when Christ intervenes, when Christ interposes his precious blood. That's when he'll stop. He will not always accuse, nor will he harbor his anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay. Why? Because of Christ. He will not repay us according to our iniquities. Why? Because our iniquities are taken away. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for us who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. You know, Isaiah, in, in I'd say darker terms, but terms that are as powerful to remind us of this great salvation forecasting 700 years before. 
Speaking of Christ, he grew, uh, he grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire of him. He was despised, he was rejected by men. A man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised. He was despised like that. And we esteemed him not. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows, yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him, and afflicted. He's a cursed one. But, Isaiah forecasts and Jesus fulfills, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. This is what compels Paul in Romans, probably you could put a magnum opus on an inspired text in Romans 8 when he says, if God is for us, who can be against us? Who did not spare his own son, this is how he shows how for us he is. He didn't spare his own son, but he delivered him up for us all. How shall he not with him also freely give us all things? You see, the flow from what he does ultimately works into all things. How will he not with him also freely give us all things. Who shall bring a charge against the elect in the final analysis? It's God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It's Christ who died. Furthermore, is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Jesus Christ has saved us from the guilt and shame of our sin. He has saved us from the wrath of God. The salvation that Christ gives is greater than we imagine. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, none of this is to say, as we conclude, none of this is to say that Christ won't save us from that issue that you're praying about right now, those terrible trials that you're dealing with, the relational, the physical, financial, so whatever it may be. But Christ first saves us in this ultimate sense. He releases us from the slavery to sin that we had before. And Christ will finally give us salvation from these earthly oppressions that we experience. Some of them happen now. Many of them happen in eternity. But he promises them to come. And that helps us in the here and the now. Because there will be physical relief that comes eventually. Our failing bodies and our failing minds will have renewal. The oppressions we have from other sinful people or that we inflict on others, those will cease. The oppression of the enemies of God on the people of God will cease. The oppression of nations against nations will cease. He promises he will bring that in due time, and it won't be long. This is an oppression that lasts for a short time span that we speak of, as difficult as it is. But it consumes us, and it misdirects us often. We look forward to the physical relief that is coming. Sometimes God will grant us this relief to the trials we face in the here and the now, but there will be other pains after those in this life we live. But every time... Every time he promises to see us through and ultimately to grow us deeper and stronger in the faith he's given us. He tells the Apostle Paul, of all people who you would think if you ask God for something, God would give it. He's got a work to do after all. And here is Paul with some mysterious thorn in his flesh that could have been spiritual, could have been physical. We don't know for sure. Lots of debate. I think the reason is because it it really qualifies for all the various things that we might ask God to give us relief from. Sometimes he does. Other times he doesn't. But Paul said perhaps the reason that God didn't take those immediate circumstances away is for this. 
So to keep me from becoming conceited, Paul writes, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, the way that God spoke to him as an apostle, because to keep him humble and relying upon God, a thorn was given to me, Paul says, in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. What grace? First, it's a saving grace. Whatever happens from this thorn, Paul, you are mine forever. I have no wrath upon you any longer. That's my first grace. But that's not the only grace because it keeps giving. It's a grace that keeps on multiplying. My grace, my sustaining grace is also, also sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, Paul says. If that's the case, then I'm going to brag about this situation so that the power of Christ may rest on me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Brothers and sisters, our most immediate problems are not likely the problem that is most important for you to wrestle with today. If you're already a believer, you have that wrestle with. It could be a, a moment of recalibration. But maybe you don't know Christ, and you're worried about a great many things that you cannot solve and will not be solved. So go to the ultimate reality of your real problem. Your real problem is you're not right with God. You're not right with God because of the sin you have. We all have. We're no different than you. We're no different than each other. The only difference is that by God's sovereign will and wonderful grace, he takes our sin, places it on his son, saves us, gives us belief to lay hold of him. If he's calling you to believe in him, lay your faith in him. Rest in Christ. That's what he's calling you to do. And your ultimate issue is solved. The other ones don't go away. I'm not saying that. But they take proper perspective now as you see your ultimate reality solidified, clarified, and made sure. God's view is far more expansive than our immediate focus. So we should look there. Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. It's likely the people crying Hosanna had too narrow a view of Christ's salvation. They probably thought about their immediate situation. Maybe they were more generally asking from relief from their lives being miserable. But in fact, Jesus did come to affect the whole of their life. And he started with their ultimate salvation by what he went on to do from that day. He started by removing the eternal wrath of God. And that removal of God's wrath leads to a sense of our forgiveness and our acceptance with God. It removes some of the miseries we feel about this life. Our understanding of who we are in Christ will help us to endure those things that come, that come living in a temporal, fallen world, the hardships of this life that face us. In any case, when our sins have been forgiven by God through Christ, that salvation that he provided when he went to the cross from that moment at Palm Sunday, then we say, with full understanding now, Hosanna in the highest, salvation in the highest, that will be fully and eternally realized. Please bow with me as I lead us in prayer. Lord, we see that you, Lord Jesus, have provided for a salvation that is far, far greater than we often contemplate or think or maybe some have realized. Lord Jesus, today we remember your entrance into Jerusalem and when you went to the cross and gave us, your people, salvation. So great a salvation. May we not neglect so great a salvation. 
Your salvation is, in fact, so great that it shapes and defines all of our temporal dealings in this life. Our view of the here and the now may be totally shaped now, O Lord, by the reality of what you have purchased for us in eternity and for eternity. Through Christ, I pray. Amen.